This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. Today we're here to discuss UFC 237, Rose Namajunas vs. Jessica Andrade, which took place in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And the thing about the UFCs that take place in Brazil is hostile territory. The fans really get riled up and passionate, but all the UFCs I can remember that take place in Brazil, even the fight night cards, they're always exciting. Whether the Brazilians are winning or losing, something about the atmosphere even if there isn't a lot of big names, Paul, would you say that those cars tend to be more exciting? I think anytime a fighter enters foreign soil and they're known as the enemy, it's almost like an extra incentive to either perform better or put on an emphatic performance if you're visiting. And I think the crowd in Portuguese, they'll be cheering, you're gonna die, you're gonna die. And I think something about that just riles everybody up to just fight at their best. So again, this card, even the prelim fights were really exciting. But the main event was champion Rose Namajunas versus Jessica Andrade for the women's strawweight title. And out of all the matches on the card, this particular fight had the biggest height disparity. And in general, whenever Jessica Andrade fights in the UFC, her fights tend to have the biggest height disparity. I think she's 5'1", if we're being generous. She might just be 5'0", even. Uh, but it was the most classic of matchups of the tall fighter versus the shorter fighter. So because this is a fight study, let's break down the fighter types. You have Rose Namajunas as the taller counter-striker slash submission artist. And then you have Jessica Andrade as the much, much shorter, powerful in-fighter slash wrestler. And the fight, it started out bad for Andrade. She had no head movement, which isn't new for this fight. She never had head movement. I keep thinking maybe she'll develop it over time. But so far, she's not developing at the speed at which actually Rose Namajunas has been developing as a fighter. Andrade was very flat-footed. She had no variety of strikes. She mostly relied on shifting hooks. Actually, hooks basically are the only punches she throws. And the thing about shifting hooks are you usually throw those only when you're already in close. So what I mean by shifting is you're shifting your weight from foot to foot. And it's a very infighting move when your head is almost to their chest. This is how Dustin Poirier uses them during an infight. And that's where he does a lot of his great work. But Andrade does them all the time. That's the bulk of her striking. It's not specific to her range. And so because she uses it all the time, rather than using it appropriately in the infighting distance, she actually also uses it to cover distance. And that's okay, actually. If you use it like Mike Tyson, I believe it was Connor Rebush who called it on YouTube years ago, the Customato Shift, where it's shifting your weight from side to side, throwing hooks mixed with head movement, the peekaboo style. But Jessica Andrade does it more like Jack Dempsey 
a la the Dempsey role, where she just runs at you with hooks. Now, the reason no one does this anymore like Jack Dempsey is because you would now, with modern boxers, get jabbed to death. It just is not going to work that well. And also, even Mike Tyson, even though he used shifting hooks, he also used step-in jabs and counters. <laughs> you got to do other stuff. You have to have more variety. Even as the shorter fighter, you can still jab. That is allowed. The other thing Jessica Andrade could have done is she could have done a Joe Frazier-style cross-arm block with some head movement, or even just Justin Gaethje or the Diaz brothers or the veteran Floyd Mayweather style of high guard entry where you just put your hands up in a high shell and just walk forward. She could have even done that. But no, she just runs at you with hooks or stands there and tries to parry every punch rather than just blocking them. And because she tried to parry every punch, it meant she just got punched a lot. Now, with all this said, I still thought Jessica Andrade was a bad style matchup for Rose. She's someone Joanna could beat by being Joanna. But for Rose to beat her, Rose would have to fight like Joanna. And Thug Rose is Thug Rose. She's authentic to herself, which is why I thought stylistically this would be a tough outing for her. And when I say Joanna, or actually Joanna, I mean Joanna Champion. Well, she's not champion anymore, but her last name is too hard to say. How do you say, Paul? Yonjechik. There you go. I'll just call her Joanna. So I felt like Joanna was the paper, Andrade was the rock, and Rose is the scissors, right? So at least currently with their current styles. Now, this may change as people evolve. So we kind of have this matchup where everybody stylistically matches up worse for each other, where Rose matches up really well with Joanna, but Joanna matches up really well with Jessica Andrade, and Jessica Andrade matches up really well against Rose. So it was ugly in the first round. Andrade was getting beat up, but Andrade eventually chased Rose Namajunas down and got her up against the fence into a takedown position. And though Jessica Andrade does knock people out, the wrestling positions are Andrade's true strengths. She knocks people out because she can walk through their punches and is super powerful. But if you watch any of her fights, you'll see she gets hit a lot. Like, a lot. When Andrade pinned Rose up against the fence, she went for her usual single leg slam. So this is common in her fight. She pushes you up against the fence, goes for a single leg, and then lifts you up. But Rose went for a Kimura as a counter. Now the commentators didn't mention this and made it seem like Rose had the advantage, but she didn't. She never had the advantage, which is why the eventual finish wasn't a shock to me after I saw the first counter to the counter meaning how Jessica Andrade countered Rose's counter against her single leg. So Rose got the Kimura, which if you don't know what that is, is when you grab your opponent's wrist, then lace your free arm around their arm, then grab your own wrist. That's why classically it's called a double wrist lock. Their wrist is locked, but so is yours. Double wrist lock. Both of your wrists are locked to each other. They're married. This is important to note later, but... That's why from now on, I'm going to call the Kimura by his original name of double wrist lock because it's better to think of it that way in the original sense because the name also gives away its flaws. Now, once Rose got the double wrist lock, Andrade still tried to single leg her down, but since their arms were married together, like I said, once Andrade tried to get up, she picked up Rose with her. 
So Jessica Andras tried it again and picked her up with a single leg. This time, instead of just dumping her down, she picked her up over her head. Now, this is what the commentating team missed. Andras picked her up in a single leg, but put Rose around her shoulders. And rather than slamming her the traditional way, she went the opposite way, untying the double wrist lock. Now, Andraj has done this before because Rose wasn't the first fighter to ever try a double wrist lock on her. But what was different than previous opponents was Rose didn't let go. Actually, Rose never lets go in this whole fight with the double wrist lock. That was unusual compared to previous opponents that Jessica Andraj had where they would all bail on it. Now, once Jessica Andraj threw Rose the opposite side and they both came down, Jessica Andraj, being the top person, if this were a jiu-jitsu match, would go for an armbar, just like Matt Hughes did against George St. Pierre in their first fight years ago. So GSP went for a double wrist lock from bottom. Hughes untied the knot, not by slamming GSP to the opposite side, but by running himself to the opposite side. But it got to the same result. It got to the same arm positioning. From there, Matt Hughes went for the armbar. Now, if you don't go for the armbar, if the bottom person is still holding on, then the bottom person can go for an armbar herself in this case. But that shouldn't actually happen in high-level grappling because the bottom person has inferior leg positioning. So you could see Rose had one leg over the face of Andraj, but the other leg, the bottom leg, it was just a knee shield. So that's easy to escape. Rose was mostly relying on a knee pinch to maintain the armbar. Now, you can even counter this by going for your own armbar from top still. You have to clear the bottom knee, block it with your own knee on belly, putting your knee on their belly, a la Matt Hughes, then step over for the armbar. Also, in this day and age, double wrist lock counters to single legs are commonplace in grappling schools. So not only in her fights, but also in training, Jessica Andraj, I have to assume, has seen this counter all the time. But in this situation, in this scramble, like I said, it was Rose who went for the armbar. And Andraj escaped. And really, Andraj survived the rest of the round because Rose was beating her up. Now, I don't speak Portuguese, but I'm curious to know ex exactly what Jessica Andraj's coach told her. Because in the second round, she came out still having her flaws, but still better than the first round. So Jessica Andraj threw a few leg kicks in round one and basically landed all of them. The problem was she didn't throw that many in round one. Round two, she threw a lot more. And as the shorter fighter, and especially since it's MMA and not boxing, you should be throwing a ton of leg kicks. Andraj should have been chewing up Rose's leg like Cannoneer did to Silva, which we'll discuss later. Because the leg kick for the shorter fighter can then also act as your step-in to close the distance. Also, as the shorter fighter, body shots are closer to you, and so are calf kicks. The thing about Jessica Andraj, though, she's mostly a headhunter. Now, why are the leg kicks, especially the calf kicks, closer if you're shorter? Because your opponent is the one with the longer legs. So their legs are closer to you. So you could kick it. And with Jessica's powerful legs, it was definitely starting to hurt Rose. Also, as a shorter infighter, I would highly recommend watching Canelo Alvarez. He's a really good person to mimic. What he does is when the taller fighter jabs, Canelo invites the jab 
so he can move offline and use their jab as his opportunity to enter. From there, after their jab, Canelo takes over. We covered this more in our previous fight study with Justin Osborne. Now, having a game like that would also make Jessica's clinch attempts and takedowns easier to get. But even though Jessica's simple striking game and constantly getting punched in the face wasn't pretty to look at, her pressure was consistent and she had Rose on the back foot. Now, one advantage Jessica Andrade has in backing her opponents up is the same as John Lineker's advantage. It's their height. They're very similar. So since they're both so short in stature, like I said, Andrade being 5'1", if we're being generous, that means she's always underneath her opponent's jaw. So all her head punches come from underneath her opponent's jaw or will come in right on the jaw. So if she ever threw an overhand, which she really doesn't, but if she were to, rather than hitting the top of her opponent's head, which happens a lot for other fighters, since she's so short, it would probably still hit her opponent's jaw. So even if her opponent's plan is to counter as Andrade is coming in, once they get hit on the jaw a couple of times, they start backpedaling. And I'm sure in sparring, it's hard to find someone like Jessica Andrade. And fighting a bigger man won't mimic that body type. And also because of her height, Jessica gets hit on the top of her head a lot. So she's willing to take one on the top of her head just to get you on the jaw. So even though Jessica Andrade ate some on the way in, she landed enough wild hooks on Rose's jaw to put Rose on the back foot and be able to chase her down against the fence. From there, Jessica Andrade got in on her hips again, which is much easier to do also because of her height difference. And this is also why Daniel Cormier gets in on his taller opponents and why it's so easy for him to lift them because he doesn't have to go down that low to get in on their hips and lift them up. So this is where Jessica's cornering gets interesting because I wonder if her coach gave her some instructions on how to handle that double wrist lock counter. But definitely in round two, Jessica switched things up, but Rose didn't. So Jessica went for the single leg lift again. Rose countered with the double wrist lock. Then Jessica switched her head to the outside and went for a high crotch. Now, normally, if you are in this position, you abandon the double wrist lock, like I said, because once you're airborne, it's hard to let go of your grip. And even if you do, then what are you going to do? You're just going to fall down unprotected. So the best time to release the double wrist lock is before the lift. And that was the same in round one. But Rose doesn't do that. She holds on. So since Rose didn't let go, even though Jessica Andrade slammed her, it was Rose's decision not to abandon the double wrist lock that got her KO'd. Going back to the GSP and Matt Hughes example again, GSP saw the armbar coming, and I'm sure he wanted to let go of his arms, but he just couldn't after a certain point. And Rose, in the same way, couldn't let go even if she wanted to once she was up in the air. And because her hands are preoccupied being locked to Jessica Andrade's arm, she didn't have her hands to protect herself to do the proper judo breakfall. And so a normal high crotch slam you see all the time in the octagon turns into a knockout. And that's why it's also not considered a spike because it's the person who got slammed who did it to themselves. So I wasn't surprised at all when Jessica Andrade won by TKO in round two by slam and punches. Even being a limited power striker like Andrade, her best chance of hurting her opponents is on the ground. And so far, she hasn't ever gassed out in a fight. 
So seeing how the grappling exchanges went in round one, that part of the fight I didn't think looked good for Rose, even though she had the armbar attempt and the double wrist lock counter, which might have made you think otherwise. Actually, her best chances were on the feet. Paul, anything you wanted to mention about Jessica Andrade that I missed? So as far as Jessica Andrade's recent success at strawweight, moving down from flyweight, was that I noticed she's very hook-heavy, reminiscent of a younger Vanderlei Silva, Chris Cyborg, and even a Robbie Lawler when he first made his debut in the UFC. Andrade had a lot of success when she started attacking the body. And when she fought Angela Hill, when she fought Tisha Torres, and even when she fought against Carolina, one of the reasons she was so successful was because the opponents all anticipated hooks to the head, and it's easier to move and counter. But hooks to the body, that becomes a little bit more difficult of a task. And I thought in round one, Jessica would definitely hurt Rose to the body more than she did because when Rose fought Carolina, she got hit with some knees on the way inside and it definitely took the wind out of her sails. So I thought Jessica's team would study that and say, hey, you're already hitting to the body anyways. You're closer. Why not just pummel into the body? You're close enough. Shoot for a takedown and we'll go from there. That's what I thought too. I was like, Right when the fight started, I'm like, okay, we're going to see some body shots. And we didn't see any. <laughs> no, right? I, maybe some pitter-patter, like when I think uh, Rose tried to plump clinch her or something, but not really. No, so that was mostly absent from round one. And it was Rose fighting the perfect fight. And to your point about Canelo, it actually was reminiscent of a different matchup for me. When Canelo fought Amir Khan, despite the bias... Just looking at it objectively, Amir Khan is so much faster than Canelo. And he was piecing him up. But Canelo realized sometime in round six, like, I'm the bigger, stronger fighter. I'm just going to hit him. And as soon as he hit him, that was it. Khan was down. And I think Jessica Andrade, even though she was hit cleanly and she was getting pieced up, she might have realized, these don't hurt that much. I'm just going to walk through. It's almost as if that moment of the emperor has no clothes of, oh, I could just walk through this. It's fine. And then she had a lot more success with her strikes. She was able to catch Rose a lot more with her hooks. And then as you already broke down with the slam, she realized, eh, it's fine. I could just still power through and also hurt her. I think Jessica Andrade has that moment in all of her fights where she's coming in and then she starts getting hit a lot. Like I said, she gets hit a lot. And then eventually in every fight, she realizes, uh, I could walk through this. Andrade's style is almost like that episode of The Simpsons when Bart and Lisa, I think Bart would swing his hand and says, if you get hit, it's not my fault. And Lisa would start kicking and going towards Bart and says, if you get kicked, it's not my fault. There's only default factory settings that they're good at. And then if you get hit, it's kind of, well, you kind of should have seen this coming. With Andra, she just went from swinging the head to swinging the body. And then now she was like, oh, I could just vary these up and one of them will catch you. Even if it's a glancing blow, it will still hurt. Like with Carolina, that's how she got knocked out. She anticipated another shot to the body and boom, it went upstairs and caught her clean. Yeah, I actually thought Jessica Andrade's striking looked a lot better against Carolina. Yeah, she still got hit a lot, Jessica Andrade, but she looked a lot more versatile in that fight. In this one, she looked more one note 
But even with that said, even with that one note, she was able to get the job done. And that's why going into the fight, I kept asking you and other people, I'm studying this fight. I'm really having a hard time seeing how Rose wins. I see Rose beating the shit out of her, but ultimately lasting all five rounds and never getting hurt because I feel like Jessica just needs to hurt her once. And I didn't mean just with a punch. I also meant on the ground. Now, with all this said, there are still so many areas of improvement for Jessica Andrade. I think she only has one coach and he's her coach for BJJ, wrestling, Muay Thai, and MMA. And that's fine and dandy. But because of her style, she's especially a perfect candidate for a boxing coach. That would take her up another level. As the shorter squat fighter, Muay Thai, I don't know if that's your best bet as your base. That's why a lot of the shorter wrestler types in the men's division, they don't rely so much on the Muay Thai style. Even though they know how to throw kicks, even though they know how to do elbows, everything, they fight more from a boxing stance and rely more on head movement. And also, even if she doesn't do that and she keeps everything the same, just by throwing a lot more leg kicks, she would just increase their effectiveness. Andrade has legs like Mark Hunt. Just kick people a lot. Just kick them. That would pay huge dividends. Let's move on to Rose Namajunas. Paul, what was your assessment? So coming into this fight, Rose was a strawweight champion at UFC. And she had a tough task of fighting Jessica Andrade on her home turf after a long layoff due to spinal stenosis. She returned after over a year of inactivity. And it was going against someone who was going to be a stylistic nightmare. Now, as you mentioned, Sam, it's not that she can't win. But in order for her to win, it would have to be the perfect fight. Similar to how Robert Whitaker fought Yo Romero the first time around. Yeah, it's going to be tough. But if you can execute your game plan down to the T, you might succeed. It's in the same vein of when Cody Garbrandt fought Dominic Cruz. Cody did everything right. And at no point did he gravitate away from the game plan. So if Rose could do something similar with the game plan put together by Trevor Whitman and Pat Berry, she could very well emerge as the winner, especially against someone who is more of a one-no fighter like Andrade. Now, Rose Namajunas comes from the Trevor Whitman camp, and Whitman himself has a long history of coaching both MMA and boxing champions. Now, not all his fighters strike alike, which makes him an interesting coach himself. He's been in the corners of guys like Shane Carwin, Rashad Evans, Nate Marquardt, and Justin Gaethje, all fighters with very different MOs and skill set. What makes Nama Yunus talented as a fighter is her ability to slip in and out of range while still being in the perfect position to counter. This, in addition to her constant use of feints to draw out attacks from her opponents, make her a very savvy offensive and defensive striker. Now, Rose wasn't always this way. She used to be very kick-heavy with her bread and butter being her submission game. She would get in close range, take down the opponent, and go for a rear naked choke. Although she hasn't abandoned her submission game, she's gotten much better with her hands. When Rose fought Joanna Jonjecic, she lured her out with constant feints and head movements to counter her punches and have her swinging at air. For a counterfighter who constantly must be on high alert, 
this is the perfect kind of style that makes them miss and pay for their mistakes. We saw that earlier in the card when Jose Aldo fought Alexander Volkanovsky. Now, dulling the senses by slowing their reaction is key to beating someone who makes a living returning fire. There's a couple of common opponents that both Rosa Mayunes and Jessica Andras share. And that's just the nature of the female weight class being relatively short on talent. And it makes sense that eventually they'll all end up fighting each other at some point. Tisha Torres, Carolina Kay, Angela Hill, and Joanna Yonjechik are all the common opponents with both Rose and Jessica going 3-1 against the opposition. Jessica lost against Joanna and Rose lost against Carolina. So using Joanna as the most recent matchup for both of them, it was going to be difficult to find a way for Rose to win unless she put together everything perfectly. Now, when I was watching the fight, I noticed both fighters were coming out from that orthodox stance and Rose was sticking and moving constantly, which is a slight departure from her previous fights. But given her corner, it wasn't a huge surprise. Now, one of the things that Rose did that I'm a huge fan of is moving laterally one direction and pivoting out quickly while throwing strikes. Miguel Cotto does this, and in MMA, Eddie Alvarez is famous for it. I think he calls it darting the darting punch. Now, Rose threw a ton of jabs, and she followed up with straights just to keep Jessica honest. So even when she thought, I can avoid this jab or eat it, Andrade would just eat a straight right right after now, the speed of Rose was giving Jessica problems, but the strength of Jessica was giving Rose a lot of problems. There's some beautiful submission attempts, as you mentioned, but they weren't that beautiful upon retrospect. And one of the things that Jessica found some success with in round one were the leg kicks. And it wasn't a good sign heading into the second round because it would play a much bigger factor. And as you mentioned, the way Jessica strikes, because she's also always the shorter fighter, she will lunge in. And when you do that against a taller fighter, it's always going to give you problems. Mike Tyson will only lunge when he knew for sure that he was within range. And once he shifted enough and you didn't realize that you were in danger of being hit clean, Andrade will instead simply march forward. And that still gives you time to move back and pivot away from the power hand and whenever Andrade did throw kicks it gave Rose pause and that's when Andrade scored with her best follow-up punches and Rose always got back on a horse and skip out but the hooks of Andrade kept finding their place from time to time because now the leg kicks are adding up and her mobility is hampered and Rose went back to her habit of slipping out of punches very nicely. But if you're still in range, Jessica will still come forward and hit you at some point. I still think Rose would give a lot of fighters in the strawweight division problems, but Andrade was always going to be tough because she was such a tough matchup. And that doesn't mean that Rose can't beat Jessica Andrade. She definitely could beat her a bunch of times also. We're just talking about two different body types and fighter types. It's kind of like puzzle pieces. How do they fit together? And 
in this type of situation, if we just look at it purely forgetting who Rose is and forgetting who Jessica Andrade is and look at the fighter types, that's why it's a bad style matchup. And that's what people mean by bad style matchups. They're referring usually to the fighter types. Rarely are they talking about the fighter personalities being a bad style matchup. Though I guess you could use it in that case if, I don't know, if one is really good at shit talking and the other one is like mentally weak or something. But otherwise, that's what we're talking about. So Rose definitely has uniqueness about herself that could win this fight. And even her fighter type can win. It's just that they have more trouble against the Jessica Andrade type. Absolutely. No one really disputes the styles make fights adage in boxing, because if you say the shorter inside fighter has an advantage against a taller fighter, if they choose not to fight on the outside, no one really disputes that. But the outside fighter, when they choose to fight on the outside, will usually beat the brawler type who thrive on the inside because they're able to piece them up and keep them from getting inside. And the way UFC commentating is right now, it still hasn't caught up to the level of the fighting, I would say. Because when they talk about style matchups, they're still thinking in the old paradigm of grappler versus striker. They're not breaking it down like striker versus striker, but two different types of strikers. Or grappler versus grappler, but two different types of grapplers. So this is what we're talking about when we talk about the layers of fighting. And I think part of that is because commentating, you don't have time to explain something for five minutes. So you just have to talk about the surface level stuff. But for us, we're willing to talk about things for a long time. So we're able to talk about the second layer of the fight, the third layer of the fight. And this is what we mean when we say the meta layer, meaning the stuff underneath the stuff. And even when we talk about stuff unrelated to fighting, we're also doing meta where we're thinking about the stuff underneath the obvious stuff. And there's sometimes stuff underneath that as well. And that's the problem is because a lot of times when people think about fighting or think about just things in general, ideas, topics in general, if they think one layer deep, they think they're super smart. They don't realize there's so many more layers after that first level. And when you think going one layer deep means you know everything, that's just called overconfidence. And so the deeper layer of this fight wasn't just striker versus grappler. They both can strike, they both can grapple, but they're two different types of strikers and two different types of grapplers. And they're actually even two different types of pressure. So the thing I wanted to add about Rose is that Rose in that double wrist lock position should have either been fluid with it and grab it or abandon it. Like grab, abandon, grab, abandon. You could go back and forth because she's still going to be in that position if she stays in the single leg. And that's what most other modern fighters do. They go back and forth with stuff. They're fluid. And Rose is very fluid in her chaining of submissions, her striking. But just with that double wrist lock, she wasn't fluid. She was just so fixated on it. Now, if she is going to stay fixated on it, what she could have done is hooked her leg between Jessica Andrade's leg while she's facing her, a la Caro Parisian, an old UFC veteran who was the first one to show a double wrist lock as the counter to the single leg at least in the UFC. And then the other option you have is to hook your opponent's leg from the outside, almost while exposing your back, a la Nick Diaz. And from either leg position encounters, you can initiate your own throw and scramble, or you can just use it to prevent the lift. So this is a counter to the counter to the counter. 
But because of the power difference, even though she could have done that, she would have just been better off letting go of the double wrist lock and just wrestling and fighting for underhooks and pushing Jessica Andrade's head away and limp legging out. And rather than trying to counter a charging bull, she should have played the matador and just jab or stiff arm and pivot away into safety. Instead of always thinking grappling situation finisher, striking situation finisher, look for that later on. Let that happen on its own later and just be more concerned primarily with your own safety, especially when you're fighting somebody this powerful. And I think this is the first time Rose has ever fought anybody this powerful because she didn't fight the Claudia Gadea. So you have to put their power into the equation. What a blast from the past mentioning both Carl Parisian and Nick Diaz. And I remember in their fight when they fought each other, Nick Diaz actually went for the Kimura off a takedown when Carl attempted it. And he just went straight down and Carl said, oh, hell no, he's not doing my move against me. So it did bring back memories from that fight and what Rose could have done instead. And it's unfortunate that Rose, for all the talent, got caught in a mental slip when I'm sure she's drilled at multiple times with training partners of this is when you know it's going well. If it's not, just let it go. And you really can't go for submissions, I think, with that much vigor unless you know there's maybe 30 seconds on the clock where even if you're not successful, you're not sacrificing position and possibly lose the entire round. And I'm not surprised that she was so insistent on that double wrist lock because all the interviews I saw, not just leading up to this fight, actually, she didn't do that many leading up to this fight, but her interviews in the past, her and Pat Berry, they kind of have this attitude where they'll really break things down and think of things as puzzles. And that worked really well against Joanna Champion. But they also, because of the way they think about it, think they solved it. Like I remember going into the Joanna Champion fight on Joe Rogan or other interviews. They're like, we figured it out. We solved it. We solved the riddle. We know exactly what we need to do. And I think that's what she thought here in this fight. We solved it. We know exactly what you need to do. And you need a little bit of improvisation, a little bit of maybe I didn't figure everything out. Maybe I figured 60% of it out. Maybe this double wrist lock counter is like 60% the answer, but not the whole thing. And so that was another thing leading into this fight. I was thinking to myself, they probably think they figured it out. There's such a smart camp, they probably figured out 80% of it. But the other 20%, you have to figure it out in the fight. And one of the things that is so good about Rose Namajunas is she's so creative. But that's also lost her some fights. And part of it is also because of her own nerves. She has to go into the fight now thinking she knows everything already beforehand instead of willing to improvise as much in the fight. And I think a little bit of the old Rose who's willing to improvise would have done a little bit better there. So I don't think she should completely abandon that thing either that made her so special. But who knows? Uh, in the post-fight, she sounded like she didn't even want to fight anymore. I don't blame her. It's a tough way to make a living, especially if your interests lie elsewhere. And Sam, when you mentioned about how Rose would do much better if she brought back some of that creativity, and it's also just have in mind that things are always subject to change. I'm sure Robert Whitaker had an even better game plan for Yoel Romero the first time around, 
but he blew out his knee in the first round. And he's like, okay, I got to figure this out on one foot. And I think fighters should always be aware that you can prepare and train and have everything ready. But come fight night, you might get poked in the eye. You might hurt your hand. And then, oh, well, there goes my jab. Oh, well, there goes this type of takedown. You're going to have to be able to improvise and come up with certain things on the spot. And that's what separates champions from great fighters. People who can adjust when the pressure is on and what they have prepared for doesn't always work. Let's move on to the co-main event. Anderson Silva versus Jared Cannonier. And out of all the fights we're covering today, this is our only open stance matchup, which is, as we've explained in previous fight studies, is where one fighter is southpaw and the other fighter is orthodox. So why it's an open stance, think of it like two open doors. They're both facing out the same way rather than a closed door where you could think of it almost like you're parallel with the other fighter. Now, in this fight, if we think of fighter types, Anderson Silva is the taller southpaw counter-striker slash submission artist, whereas Jared Cannonier is the shorter, powerful, I would say, in-and-out striker slash wrestler. So, Paul, let's start with Jared Cannonier. So in his recent fight against David Branch, Jared Cannonier got taken down multiple times. But as we mentioned in a previous episode about Cannonier, the one thing I believe makes him so successful is that he will listen to his corner extremely well. He follows all the steps and executes perfectly to avoid disaster on the ground. And in that fight against David Branch, when the first round was winding down and Branch's takedowns got sloppier and sloppier. Jerry Cannonier took advantage and uncorked a huge right hand to knock out David Branch. And going into the Anderson Silva fight, if this was the Anderson from 10 years ago, even maybe five years ago, it might have been a completely different story. But given that Silva as someone who relies on being the counter striker as well as speed and reflexes that slowed down and if that's the first thing to go against somebody who packs a power like jared given that he's moved down from heavyweight to middleweight was always going to be a problem now cannoneer had eddie cha in his corner coming out of that fight lab camp in arizona and it was going to be interesting to see how he was going to deal with the constant baiting and flashy movements of Anderson Silva. As you mentioned, this was an open stance and Jared started tentative, not trying to give Silva too many reads because Silva is looking at you like a computer. A lot of fighters do this where they're trying to get reads on you and prepare the perfect counters. And instead of either fainting or moving a certain way to give misdirection, Jared stayed almost like a sphinx, not giving any easy tells or reads. And the one thing that Jared did well, which was foreboding, was the constant leg kicks. And usually leg kicks are something that Anderson Silva used to throw with impunity. But post Chris Weidman too, he was a bit more hesitant and I don't blame him. Now, one of the things that Silva never really addressed in his career was the fact that he'll let his back 
hit the fence and then he'll either evade strikes or invite you to come in and get into a clinch. And Cannoneer will drive Silva to the fence and Silva won't move laterally until it's too late. And Silva still has good enough head movement to when Jared throws those overhands and Silva will roll with the punches, but he still eats them. Now, Jared didn't do a lot. Now, Jared didn't do enough feint to really find more openings. But when he was throwing, he was connecting because Anderson Silva was having a harder time finding the read and making sure he times it correctly. And unfortunately, in round one of the fight, Jared Cannonier won by TKO due to leg kicks. It was a perfectly placed inside leg kicks right above the knee of Anderson. It buckled him. He went down in pain and the ref saw enough and he stopped it. Now, the boos afterwards were intense. They did not let Jared get in a word. And Jared had to kind of pause and wait until the crowd kind of quieted down. But I think it wasn't given Cannoneer enough credit when they says, oh, Anderson hurt his knee. It's like, or it's because Cannoneer kicked it like 10, 20 times that he hurt it. I mean, you got to give him some credit. And I know Anderson Silva has said he wanted to fight a few more times before he calls it a career. But for fighters that rely on mobility and speed, knees are the first thing that usually goes. Look at Shogun. Another thing that's interesting about Jared Cannonier is that even though he's the shorter fighter, he has the same reach as Anderson Silva. So that's also deceptive. So let's talk about what Anderson Silva did in this fight and what he did well and what he didn't do well. So Anderson Silva starts a fight Here's the thing, right? There's a pattern to him. So whether I'm describing this fight or previous fights, it's going to sound like the same thing. And that's part of the problem. It's becoming predictable. Anderson Silva starts the fight with hand feints. But Silva, unlike Jose Aldo, which we'll discuss next, is someone who will counter-strike, but also try to win the round. And since it was an open stance matchup, Silva went for the left body kicks the left side head kicks, even went for some leg kicks. And like Paul mentioned, ever since he broke his leg, he's been gun shy to kick really hard. But he's somebody who actually then, if you are gun shy, would do well then to go for calf kicks because you're kicking so low that your chances of hitting shin to shin or shin against knee are much less likely. And another interesting thing about this fight and just Silva in general is even after all these years, he still tries to go for the tie clinch. But he hasn't hurt anybody from the tie clinch in a long time. In fact, whenever he goes for this in recent years, he's the one who gets hurt. Because the small gloves changes everything about that clinch. And so in modern MMA, people punch their way out of tie clinches. So Silva wisely abandoned it, but I don't even know why he goes for it in the first place. So Silva, along with pot shots to score points and kicks and jabs, uses the Sugar Ray Leonard strategy of trying to pressure at the end of rounds to win the round. But by now, everybody knows this. It's no longer clever, but just basic. So it was expected. And here's another weird thing about MMA. MMA is a different sport than Muay Thai. Things just change. It's a different sport from boxing. It's a different sport from wrestling, jiu-jitsu, everything. 
So in MMA, if you face a Muay Thai specialist, one of the best things you can do is to leg kick them. Like Edson Barboza and Jose Aldo, they eat a ton of leg kicks. And so does Anderson Silva. He's eaten a lot of leg kicks in his career. And he ate a lot in this fight. And since it was predictable late round pressure that everybody knows Sugar Anderson Silva is going to do, Cannoneer was ready. And Silva walked himself onto a leg kick, which increased the force of it, took away his ability to even lift the leg or do anything to defend, and which is why his knee gave out. And part of why he ate so many leg kicks is because the same as Aldo and Essen Barbosa, he waits too long to go for his pot shots. And all of them get kicked while they're waiting. And even though Silva is the southpaw, he rarely uses that as a southpaw advantage. A lot of people use that type of open stance, awkward matchup to hurt their opponent. The best example I could think of is Conor McGregor. But the thing about Silva is, even though he's southpaw, he rarely fights for that southpaw foot positioning to get in on his opponents. But as the southpaw, doing that would open up your left straight and you also would have your head off the line. And also because of that open stance and the distance between your power hands, if they try to step in, you can also step in at the same time and create a collision with your left fist meeting their face, which increases the power of that counter. Again, this is something that Conor McGregor and other southpaws use. But rather than fighting for feet positioning, Silva relies more on head movement than countering. But head movement like that to counter, that takes a lot of speed, which he no longer has. So Silva is definitely faded, but that's not why he lost this fight. He lost this fight because everyone now knows his style. And once your style is well studied, is when your style gets old. Fighters can age, we know that, but so can your style. Your style can also age, just like Hoist Gracie's style aged. Just like having the single style age. Just like you know you can't just be a jiu-jitsu guy in MMA anymore. It's taking even longer for people to realize you can't just be the striker guy in MMA anymore. So even if the old Silva was back, the best shape of his life, it'll be hard to keep winning with that low volume striking style that relies purely on pot shots and none of the other aspects of MMA like ground fighting and takedowns. Did you want to add anything to Silva? Yeah. So one of the interesting notes that I had for Anderson Silva was in his previous fight against Israel Adesanya, Anderson took the lead and it made for interesting exchanges. Anderson hasn't really used a lot of offensive weapons because he was always worried about the takedown, but that fear wasn't there against Israel. And given that Kananir was looking to strike, I thought Anderson might go back to leading and possibly throwing off Cannoneer. Now, Silva seemed to know that Cannoneer wouldn't go for his normal baiting, and I thought he would try a few more high-risk moves just so that he might be able to get Cannoneer to drop his guard, similar to what he did to Israel Adesanya. And even though he knows he could get KO'd, it might also increase his chances of knocking out Cannoneer. Now, Maybe it's because Anderson has slowed down, or it probably is because he has slowed down. He's not able to defend the late kicks as well as he could have in his prime. Would that have been the difference maker in this fight? I don't know. But he might have very well still lost.
but at least it might not have been through TKO of leg kicks. And that's what I meant by kick the Muay Thai specialist, because if you've done a lot of Muay Thai sparring and just Muay Thai competition in the past, which a lot of these guys did before MMA, their legs are so battered and they've been hurt checking kicks before that they don't want to check kicks anymore because it hurts. Uh, and also, I think they've seen too many leg breaks. So, so a lot of the Muay Thai guys, counterintuitively than what you would expect, they don't often check the leg kicks. Instead, what they try to do is time your leg kick so they can punch you. It's more of the newer Muay Thai guys, like a Khalil Roundtree, who are so exuberant and so excited about Muay Thai. They'll keep throwing leg kicks and checking leg kicks like they have titanium legs. And then through experience you'll see they'll stop. Look at Jose Aldo is a great example. He's somebody who used to throw a lot of leg kicks and check leg kicks. He doesn't do either anymore. And that's a veteran reason. Their legs just can't take it anymore. So moving on to our next fight, Jose Aldo versus Alexander Volkanovsky. And actually in this fight, though their height and reach were similar, Volkanovsky took a lowered boxer wrestler kind of stance while Aldo stood more straight up in a classical Muay Thai striking stance. So even though they're similar in size, it still ended up a taller standing counter-striker slash anti-wrestler versus a wide-stanced pressure fighter slash wrestler in Volkanovsky. And the reason why, again, we're explaining all this stuff is because if you're not only a fan of MMA, but you also want to understand for your own self how to apply these ideas, that's why we're explaining it in the fighter type analogy. This is what we mean by fight study. We're not just breaking down the fight. We're studying the art slash science of fighting. So let's start off with Volkanovsky. Paul, what do you have for me? So Alexander, the great Volkanovsky is coming off a recent thudding over Chad Mendez. And he got what he wanted when he got paired up against a legend in Jose Aldo. I think with this win, he has a strong case of challenging Max Holloway for the belt. And even though Aldo has slowed down a step, there were still a lot of things that Alex did right that I think can give Max Holloway or anyone else in the featherweight division a run for their money. Now, Alex fights out of that orthodox stance. And the thing immediately that I like about him is his use of constant feints and kicks. And even though he wasn't able to show it as much in his most recent fight, here we got to see how Alex looks like in a three-round fight against someone like Aldo. Now, against a counter-striker who's always has that hair-trigger response, this is going to be the best way to get their senses dulled and make sure that their reaction timing is off. Now, Alexander constantly circle to Aldo's left. And given that it's an orthodox versus orthodox matchup, it didn't give Alex any pause of, well, what if he decides to stand switch? Aldo hasn't really been doing it in his career. He wasn't about to start this late. Alex threw constant inside low kicks to Aldo. And one, it slowed him down. And two, like you mentioned, Sam, it's not something that Aldo wants to really check now. And it really hampered his mobility and response time to when Alex would switch things up and go with punches. Now, Alex also tries to get reads 
on Aldo, but he wasn't doing that well in the first round just because sometimes when the counter striker doesn't bite on your strikes, it does make it a little bit harder for the person initiating the feints. But if you stay with it, eventually it'll pay off over time. Volkanovski jab similar to Whitaker where he'll run in like a fencer, but I don't want to say run in like it's a bad thing. He uses speed to dart in, punch you, and then he's out. And Alex also does a great job of level changing up and down, low, high. And even though he won't physically move laterally from left to right, he moved his entire body in that stance. So Aldo never got comfortable enough to commit to a strike. So if the counter-striker thinks, I'm going to hit now, oh, okay, he's already out. I'm going, um, no, it looks like he might not be in the position. And another thing that I really liked Volkanovski doing to Aldo, and we've seen this a lot, like you mentioned, with shorter fighters against taller fighters, is when he drove Aldo to the fence and he held him there either to buy time, hurt him on the inside by throwing knees, to Aldo's inside when Volkanovski would throw knees against Aldo's legs to slow him down, make sure that his head was nuzzled comfortably under Aldo's chin, hurt him with some punches on the inside, and just make sure to just kill off the general mobility of Aldo. Now, you mentioned previously, Sam, about how if fighters like Andrade would just put their forearms up and march forward, they might have more success or at least take less damage. Volkanovski did exactly that against Aldo, where he moved forward his double forearm guard to return fire, or he'll simply back up and pivot to the side and go back to fainting and throwing kicks. Now, one of the things that I loved Volkanovski doing was throwing punches after kicks in round two, and he does just enough to avoid the counters when Aldo would return fire. So round one, we saw Volkanovski throwing kicks, fainting, pushing Aldo against the fence. And in round two, it was more of the same. But now he's following up with punches to the top. Now, by not giving Aldo enough time to respond, Alex did a great job of making sure that Aldo was just never comfortable. And he was able to do this because he'll throw constantly, even if it's not full power. So he doesn't have to worry about what if I get tired? What if these power strikes are going to eventually drain my gas tank? He knew that at some point, I'm going to vary it up from soft punches to hard punches, low kicks to high, moving one way to the other and never making sure Aldo was comfortable. The commentating team mentioned it. They just said Aldo seems off. He seems like he's having an off night. He's fighting not to lose. It's also because Volkanovski did a great job of scouting Aldo and knowing how to execute a game plan and just making sure he wasn't comfortable. In round three, Volkanovski landed a lot more cleaner, crisper strikes. And this is when we finally saw Aldo's senses being dulled enough to where Volkanovski will initiate an exchange, land cleanly, and still be able to exit. And the only thing Aldo really was able to land were those reflexive strikes due to veteran savvy. And Dominic Cruz actually asked Daniel Cormier, who was in the commentating booth, hey, DC, it looks like Volkanovsky has 
an underhook and he's pinning the other arm and he has his head under the jaw. Can you give us a little insight? You're great at this. And DC just retorted, hey, I can't give all my secrets away. <laughs> but we will because the UFC is not paying us. And you could clearly see that Volkanovski learned from other fighters and know that this is a great position to nullify a quick striker, dull their senses, buy some time, slow down their mobility. And when Volkanovski did disengage, it was usually on his own terms and wasn't when Aldo felt like, okay, this is enough. I want out. And Aldo is great at scrambling and avoiding the takedowns, but being pushed against the fence, he doesn't seem to have that same level of urgency. And if I had to nail this fight down, it would be Volkanovski executing a perfect game plan against an Aldo who just didn't seem all that urgent. No, that's a good read. And also something I was impressed with Volkanovski was he does intersperse stance switches as well to give different reads. He He's the modern MMA fighter, like a Robert Whitaker, a Max Holloway, Demetrius Johnson, Dustin Poirier, that type. So let's talk about the former great king, Jose Aldo. Aldo actually looked great in round one. You know, he's an all-time great for a reason. Let me tell you what he did good in this round. Rather than excessive footwork that you might see, like I said, with these modern MMA fighters I just gave uh, kudos to earlier, Aldo uses minimal footwork. So his opponent might take three steps, stand switch, and Aldo might counter all that positioning and angling by moving one inch. Because it's really about keeping your opponents in position. But a lot of times the modern MMA fighters, they use those types of heavy footwork as part of their fainting game. So this is something that'll come up later, as I'll explain. But people who use footwork as feints are people like Rose Namajunas and Dominic Cruz. They don't just use the classical shoulder feints, hand feints, hip feints, but they use the way they step in and angle as well as a form of their fainting game. And that's something that Volkanovski did well. But with all that said, Aldo doesn't do that. It's more excessive compared to what he does. And for the most part, when Aldo is on, he could counter all that. So if you watch round one, no matter what Volkanovski did, Aldo was in good positioning with his hips facing his opponent and feet also in good position. Aldo, for his part, then played the matador, which didn't last long, but he did it really well in round one of this fight. And that's something that, going back to Rose Namajunas, I wish she would have done more throughout her whole fight playing the tactical matador. Aldo also doesn't rely on kicks too much in this part of his MMA career, but he was in this fight, in this first round, I should say, was throwing tactical low kicks and super sharp jabs. I think Jose Aldo might have one of the best jabs in all of MMA. And in the first round, we also saw aggressive counter-striking, where he gets right in your face, gets you to throw first, then counters off of your first strike. And he also made Volkanovski pay for his volume by catching some of Volkanovski's kicks and countering. He also timed some knees as Volkanovski was coming in. He also used a lot of head movement to give Volkanovski a moving target. But even in round one, one thing I didn't like, 
and think now it's not working so well in MMA anymore is sliding back, looking for the check hook. Several years ago, it was working like a charm. It was catching everybody. But now fighters have wisened up to it. And now either your counter hook is getting countered or you're sliding yourself back into the cage. And part of that is because in boxing footwork, it's faster to pivot and slide back than it is to just slide straight back. And it also opens up the check hook. Now that's boxing. Why that might not be so great for MMA is maybe you're not in a good position to slide back and punch or throw the hook when you're just sliding back in a straight line uh, in a traditional boxing back movement versus the pivot back step boxing back movement. Why the traditional slower style might be better for MMA is because it allows you to throw a straight punch while you're sliding back, or it puts you in a good hip and arm positioning to double forearm guard, underhook, defend the takedown, anticipate the level change. Having your hips face your opponent in MMA, especially when there's takedowns involved, just seems like the better move currently. And that's why the thing that was very modern and clever a couple of years ago, pivoting, backstepping, and throwing the hook is now no longer new and catching anyone anymore. And that one change in MMA has been ruining Luke Rockhold's career. But we haven't seen him in a while. Maybe he's made some adjustments. So Jose Aldo asked a counter-striker who's not going to do the other half of MMA, which is to take it to the ground or clinch. He needs to then really make his striking count. So like I said, Aldo did well in the first round. A lot of good things were there. But he fought that round like it was a single solitary round, not round one of a three-round fight. So he didn't do anything as investment for the later rounds. He didn't put anything in the bank. He didn't make it something that he could build from. And one of those things is feints. As a counter-striker, you have to use striking what I call clickbait. Make them click on something they shouldn't have. And so round one became Jose Aldo's peak round, and then it was downhill from there. And even though he did do some great things, he didn't do enough of it also. And this also explains to me Jose Aldo's reaction at the end of the fight, why he thought he won. Because he genuinely did do a lot of the right things, the things that he's supposed to do, the things that would win you the fight. He figured those things out. His camp figured those things out. He has those abilities within him anyway. But he didn't do enough of it. And he didn't continue doing it. Just because you figure out what works against the style isn't the same as doing it in the fight. Like I mentioned previously with Rose Namajunas, don't assume you figured it out. It's not like I figured it out. I'm done. There is no done until the final bell rings. You just got to keep figuring it out until the referee says stop. When round two came, Aldo really got locked in on just the countering game. Waiting more, abandoning now the jabs and kicks, and just waiting and losing on volume. Also, he was resting against the fence and letting Volkanovsky take the momentum. As you mentioned, Paul, it was about the urgency. He's shown urgency in the past. He showed urgency when he fought Chan Mendes twice. Not in this fight. And I think part of it was because he, in his mind, thought he was winning. And his corner also told him he was winning. Maybe they believe that also. Or maybe they just don't think they could tell him the truth anymore. And now by round three, 
Aldo was just completely flat-footed. Not even counter-striking, but now just looking for the single-shot KO. But you can't wait, though, as a counter-striker. Otherwise, you're going to lose on volume. And the reason why he was flat-footed is because when you're waiting for your opportunity, you're just standing there. That waiting is what makes you flat-footed. Just standing there is what makes you flat-footed. Waiting for the counter is what makes you flat-footed. You have to be an aggressive counter-striker, like I said. And if you're standing there seeing everything coming, that also includes the feints. You see the feints and you just fall for it. You have to mess up their rhythm. Because part of that waiting game is not only are you losing on volume, you're also allowing them to program your reactions. But the way this fight went isn't new to this fight. He's faded before in the later rounds of plenty of his other fights. You could even go back all the way, I think, to his first title defense against Mark Hominick, and he was fading in that fight also. And when I mean first title defense, I mean in the UFC, not his WEC reign. But in his previous fights, when he faded, he scored so much early on, it didn't matter. And this is actually why Volkanovski was always a bad style matchup for Aldo. He's a more durable, higher energy Chad Mendez with more footwork and feints. And that volume, footwork, fainting, and energy and pace is the same thing Max Holloway did to beat Jose Aldo. In some ways, Volkanovski is very similar to Max Holloway. As the counter-striker, you have to be aggressive in your counter-striking. You have to be in your face. You have to be fainting. You have to make them throw first. And if nothing happens, score first with kicks and jabs. Actually, a great example of this is Donald Cerrone versus Al Iaquinta recently in their matchup. And also as the counter-striker, you can't put all your eggs into the counter-strike knockout basket. You still have to keep fighting and keep hurting your opponent and keep chipping away at them. Also, as the counter-striker, you could do well by changing the power of your strikes. This is something you mentioned, Paul, about Volkanovski knowing when to soften up his punches. If you only throw with power, that's predictable and easier to see. When you throw with less power sometimes, then it makes it harder to see your punches coming and also makes your punches faster. This is how your striking becomes more dynamic and flexible, and it makes it harder for your opponents to read it especially read the timing. It could be fast, fast, hard, 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 fast. You're just going back and forth. You have the power, mix it up. Score first, hit them a couple times before you hit them with the power. Don't only look for the power shots and miss all your shots. And also you can't be lazy as the counter-striker. You have to put in the work, throw combinations and hit them more than you're being hit. And like I said, dynamic punching where you sometimes hit with less power but with more speed, helps you put in that work. Helps you just put in the work of hitting your opponent more. You have to go to work on your opponent, especially if you're not going to put in the work against your opponent by wrestling them. That's the other way you can put in work, by wrestling and grinding or clinching. If you're not going to do all the different other ways to put in the work and score, you have to put in the volume. You decide how you want to do this. And in modern MMA, you just can't do low volume striking anymore like you used to be able to do in the past. Yes, you can overcome having less volume by having more power like Dustin Poirier had over Max Holloway, but you still have to keep the volume competitive, which is what Dustin Poirier did. It can't be 50 significant strikes versus your four harder power shots. 
you also can't run yourself into the cage. Otherwise, no more counter-striking because you're flat and pinned up against the cage. Also, as the more upright fighter, you're more mobile. Then if you're more mobile, use your mobility. Pivot, sidestep, turn your opponent. And Aldo did do that a couple times in round one with the jab, but you have to keep doing it. And also along with the jab, you can leave the jab out there as a stiff arm to turn your opponent or to pivot off of your opponent. This is something that Israel Adesanya does really well and Joanna Champion does really well as well. And when I say stiff arm, I don't mean against their face where you eye gouge, but against their shoulder. Also, if you're going to implement this game, you need speed. To counter, you have to be fast, which I was mentioning earlier with Anderson Silva. He's not fast anymore. He needs to switch some things up. In their two fights, Aldo and Anderson Silva, they were the slower counter strikers. That's not a good combination. The whole fight, they were both constantly caught thinking rather than doing. Also, another thing a counter striker should do against someone who is in a wide, low stance is to throw head kicks. What that'll do is it'll stand the bolt upright to block the kick. This can also prevent a level change. Then once their jaw is eye level, you can build off of that. You're a good striker. Their jaw is now eye level. Work with that. Part of why Holy Home, Crow Cop, and Wonder Boy are so hard to take down isn't just because of their defensive wrestling, but it's also because of their head kicks. Yes, you can duck under the head kick and hopefully take them down that way. But sometimes that just means their shin will skim the top of your head <laughs> and wobble you that way. Or they might change the height of their kick and knock you out anyway, even though you're trying to go underneath, like Marlon Moraes versus Aljamain Sterling. High kick, high kick, middle kick. Aldo, similar to Fedor Emelianenko, has fallen in love with punched knockouts and have forgotten they can kick and also have forgotten they're experts on the ground. So Aldo was competitive in this fight. He wasn't blown away. But Volkanovski clearly won the fight and won the fight pretty easily after the first round. Paul, anything you wanted to add about the rise and fall of Jose Aldo? I think you can sum up a lot of things you said with Aldo, with Anderson Silva. It's interesting to see two Brazilian MMA legends on the same card fall from grace for not the same reason, but similar reasons. When you're a counter-striker and you live and die by your speed and reaction, that's usually the first thing to go. Unless you have something else that you can bank on and you have other skill sets, it's going to be, I don't want to say downhill from here, but a slow descent into mediocrity. You could still win against middling competition, but by no means will you be a threat to the top five. And when I look at the middleweight landscape and the featherweight landscape respectively, I don't see a way forward for either fighters to retire as champions. And especially with Aldo, the unfortunate thing is you can be an aggressive counter-striker, like you mentioned, Sam, with both Israel Adesanya and Joanna Champion being so. And in boxing, you see it with guys like Vasily Lomachenko or Canelo Alvarez, where you can counter and be aggressive, move forward, force a person to make mistakes as opposed to waiting for them to make a mistake. 
And I hope that fans don't judge them too harshly on their recent losses, especially considering their body of work. But at the same time, please don't use the body of work as justification to continue give them tough matchups. I think that about wraps it up. If you enjoy what we do, if you enjoy these fight studies, if you enjoy our interviews with interesting people, please tell your friends. Get other people to listen. It'll do a lot for this show. If you haven't written a review on whatever platform you use to listen, please give us a review that helps with the iTunes, Stitcher, whatever player you use. It helps with the algorithm push the podcast up so other people can see it. And also, if you love the show and want to help it continue to grow and want to help us continue to order some pizza and order some pay-per-views is consider becoming one of our Patreon sponsors. But other than that, Thank you and talk to you guys next time. Later.